Episode number five. In this episode, we speak with Sensei Derek Morris, a sixth Don black belt in Kamishin Ru Jiu Jitsu and Kokoko Do Jiu Jitsu, fifth Don black belt in Nakamura Ru, Toyama Ru Bata Do, and a purple belt in BJJ. We talk about traveling and training in Japan, history of Jiu Jitsu, and Japanese etiquette. Do we know how to punch? Do we know how to kick? Do we know how to choke and grapple? Of course. But do we know how to punch and kick and grapple with life's real issues and problems? That's at the heart of what the samurai was trying to get at, which is why he became a warrior and a poet and not just, you know, a tool for destruction. Welcome to the Martial Arts Junkies Podcast. All martial arts, all the time. This is where we talk with martial arts instructors, students, and competitors about teaching, training, competing, history, philosophy, and anything to do with martial arts. Now your hosts, Jerry Lorita and James Marler. Today we got Sensei Derek Morris on the interview with us. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Uh, just so we can kind of get started, can you let everybody know like uh, uh, when you got started, how old you are, where you're from, that kind of a thing? Yeah, sure. I'm turning 40 this year. Um, I watched Shaolin versus Wu-Tang when I was in high school and decided I wanted to learn martial arts at the uh, old age of 17. Thought I was too old to start. Um, but decided to open up the yellow pages and look for a martial arts school. I kind of narrowed it down to uh, Jeet Kune Do or this weird Japanese jiu-jitsu style and, and started that, uh, you know, a few decades back and, and have been, been hooked ever since. Just for the younger guy, what's the yellow pages, by the way? <laughs> yeah, before smartphones, right? You couldn't just like type in and find a martial arts school. You literally had to either know someone who trained somewhere or pull out that big old phone book and look through and, and try to find uh, an advertisement. I still used to do that. I remember years ago, whenever I would visit anywhere I'd, in the hotel or whatever, I'd pull out the phone book. Oh, let's see what martial arts schools are there. You know, me too. We are so spoiled. Yeah. So spoiled these days now. So you now know, you're pop it up on the phone. So now you found it, I guess it was you, you settled on the Japanese jujitsu uh, school. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Correct. And who was that? And what was that like? So I started with um, Ted Petit was uh, and is still kind of uh, my instructor. Uh, it was a classical Japanese art that had just found its way into where I grew up in Southern California because of aerospace, because of Lockheed, where they built uh, like the B-2 bomber and stuff. This engineer had ended up out there and he um, had inherited this system that had been brought back from, you know, Japan um, by another military guy back on the East Coast. So because of uh, military aerospace, some of these arts have just kind of creeped their way into random places in the United States. And I was fortunate enough to find a a legit uh, martial arts school that had like a a very, um, you know, nice lineage that wasn't just uh, some kind of uh, thrown together mess. Like, unfortunately we find a lot of these days. Now, what style was that by the way? It's called Kami Shin Ryu. 
Kami Shinryu. Kami Shinryu. What does that mean? Does it have a meaning? Yeah. So Kami is like godly or divine Mm -hmm. and Shin um, is heart, Kokoro in Japanese. And so Kami Shin is like divine heart system. And it's based off of this old scroll um, that dates back to 1377 AD. And it basically talks about how a practitioner of this, this art must possess a divine heart. You know, you see a lot of this in uh, samurai culture. If you're teaching people deadly, uh, effective dismantling of the human body type moves, you have to couple it with some etiquette okay. or things get, get nasty real quick. So now what was that training like uh, with your instructor? So a lot of uh, stuff that when you watch a movie, a martial arts movie, and, you know, the end fight scene is always cool and epic. But really what got them there was a lot of boring stuff, just a lot of boring stances and fundamentals and basics. So what do we do uh, to make that more entertaining? We, we have the epic montage, right? So we have that cool scene where they're doing something by the lake. But what are they usually doing? It's like a horse stance right? or, or moving in some, some type of basic stances. Because, uh, you know, uh, all of the fundamentals are in balance and control and, and jujitsu before you have the audacity to try to control the opponent, you must first learn to control yourself. So a lot of the training was just moving and learning to be rooted yet fluid, learning to, uh, you know, of course, posture and everything so that you don't get taken down. And then, of course, a lot of break falling because we do a lot of throwing. So you had to learn how to fall. So a lot of rolling, a lot of break falling. And then, you know, for people that are just watching stuff on YouTube, and it looks like kind of a mixture of karate meets judo uh, meets Muay Thai kind of thing, you know? So you have your kind of kickboxing looking stuff, but you have your grappling type of stuff. Um, And so, of course, nowadays, everyone just calls that mixed martial arts, but classical Japanese jiu-jitsu, you just had to be versatile. You had to deal with the knife. You had to deal with the multiple attackers. You had to be able to hit them and you tried to hit them in vital areas um, because the goal was to end the conflict, not to go round. Now, I mean, today, you know, everybody knows about Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So what's different about Kamishin jiu-jitsu versus like Brazilian jiu-jitsu that we know today? Yeah. So Brazilian jiu-jitsu is like my grandkid, right? So if I'm, if I'm grandpa, I'm Japanese jiu-jitsu and my curriculum is super wide. I've got to learn how to do everything under the sun. Okay. Um, so I'm like an ER doctor. So if someone comes in with a broken leg, I got to handle that. Okay, now I'm delivering a baby. Okay, now I'm removing a bean in some kid's nose. Like you're just doing all kinds of weird random stuff. Whereas BJJ or judo or Muay Thai, they're like your specialist, your heart surgeon, your brain surgeon. They really focus in on, on a specific area so they can go real deep with that. I don't have that luxury. Uh, because I have to be versatile. So my strategy then is to play to my opponent's weakness while trying to maximize my strengths, but recognizing that everyone else has the advantage of being much stronger in their specialty. So an ER doctor would always refer to that heart surgeon or that brain surgeon when it comes to those type of things. Okay. Now, how long did you train with your instructor? Or I guess you're still training with him technically, correct? Yeah, so, so that one's still going. And then through him, he introduced me to other um, influences that our style had had when it was in Japan. And so in retracing those roots, I have then um, gone back to Japan. I li- lived there for a couple of years. I've been back 25 times. I've taken over 100 students to Japan. Uh, you know, being fluent in Japanese has opened up doors for me to 
um, basically become a direct disciple of some some high level guys in Japan and the specific styles that I was interested in, specifically Kokodo Jiu-Jitsu, um, which is headed up by a man named Irie Yasuhiro. He was the top student of the man who created Hakoryu. He was the one of the students of um, uh, Sokaku Takeda of Daito Ryu fame. So those are the very classical jujitsu systems that really specialize in protecting your weapon. You have a sword, you draw it, you cut, end of story. The guy grabs you in your wrist to prevent you from drawing your sword, wrist locking and throwing. Um, so a little bit different than kind of like where judo came from because, you know, this style, kokodo jujitsu, was really more of, again, that specific niche art within a samurai's skill set. And I also learned Japanese swordsmanship. So, and within swordsmanship, you have the niche art of drawing and cutting efficiently. So like the art of the quick draw, essentially. So Kenjutsu is when your sword is drawn and you have to now navigate all the timing and the distancing. You have your Kendo, which is the, you know, the modern fencing version of it. Whereas Iaido or Batodo is being able to deploy your weapon efficiently, kill the bad guy, move on kind of a thing. So I've, uh, trained to high levels in both that and Kokoro Jiu-Jitsu, which had both influenced our style when it was back in Japan, um, you know, decades and decades ago. Now, Kamishin and Kokodo, what's what's different about those two arts? Yeah, so Kamishin um, has a really long history where it's actually bounced around from countries. So it, it can basically trace back, like most martial arts, all the way back to good old Shaolin and um, a lot of the people that were um, involved in our specific style ended up going a different direction with the uh, Tai Chi actually. So more of an internal splinter happened a long time ago. Uh, the art then migrated to Korea where it, uh, in 1950, a serviceman, a Marine was introduced to it, Albert C. Church. So he was introduced to it in, um, you know, he had grown up doing a little bit of jujitsu in this East Coast, which was very rare. He got beat up by a, a little Asian kid and then they became friends. And then his dad taught him some, some jujitsu and uh, a little Japanese kid. And so when he had gone to uh, Korea, you know, when he had time, which there were, a lot of fighting was happening, he found this style. Then in war-torn Korea, this master had to move to Japan. They were forced to learn Japanese. So he moved to Japan to seek cancer treatment because war-torn Korea couldn't provide for him. And he worked, he gets his student that he had become friends with. They looked up to the Americans, the military, because they kind of helped free their country there in Korea and uh, has him come to Japan. So now Albert C. Church, this Marine is now stationed in Japan training with um, this master and his, most of his students back in Korea had moved on to this nationalistic movement of kind of combining and supporting this new art called Taekwondo. I don't know if you've heard of it, yeah. but uh, I guess so. it's kind of a big martial art. Yeah. So, so basically most of his students had kind of gone in that direction and he didn't really have any. Uh, so in a surprise move in uh, November 1st, 1967, this white dude inherits this martial art. So he has this big old long scroll. Um, it's 30 feet long. It's got uh, Chinese characters. It's got Korean writing on it. And he's like, okay, I'm now, I've got this system, but he, he was still stationed or he was still going to be in Japan for a while. So he sought out um, arts to kind of complement it. So he sought out a couple of teachers. The first one was um, Shogo Kuniba, 
And along with him was a guy named Teru Hayashi, and they were Shitoryu Karate uh, folks. Another one was Ryuho Okuyama, who was the instructor I mentioned earlier, who was um, a student of Sokaku Takeda. So Ryuho Okuyama and Morihei Ueshiba both trained with the same teacher. Ueshiba went more of the spiritual route and created Aikido. Ryuho Okuyama was a doctor uh, of acupuncture. And he also studied this weird, crazy stuff called Western medicine in Japan way back when. And so uh, he took the art into a different direction. So the problem that Daitori was having was these old samurai were getting paid per technique. So they just started adding, 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 adding 5,000 techniques or whatever. You got to pay per technique. That's kind of how they made their living. Well, a lot of the instructors realized principles were what matter. You don't need so many techniques. So if you think of jujitsu as a language, Techniques are just your vocabulary words, but the grammar, right, is kind of what dictates the application of those words and those principles are what make things work. The principles, like I mentioned before, are being rooted yet fluid will dictate how you do X, Y, Z techniques and stances and things like that. So they, that's why they both kind of shot off from the Daito Ryus. And there's a lot of styles that are influenced by Daito Ryu, including a lot of the top judo guys back in the day. A lot of them jumped ship from Daito Ryu and kind of jumped on Jigoro Kano's train of doing judo, despite the fact that Kano himself, the founder of judo, did more, you know, Kito Ryu and other jujitsu styles. But um, he, uh, Ueshiba, you know, went a little bit too, and maybe not just him either, because Ueshiba was pretty tough. He's a pretty tough dude, you know. He's got pictures of him weightlifting and doing other things. But nowadays, a lot of the Aikido practitioners are just kind of a little bit more on the hippie side these days, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, whereas Okuyama went a little bit more very painful, very direct, very e effective. You had to learn, uh, in my Kokoro training, I had to learn Shiatsu. You know, my teacher in Japan, he's an acupuncturist. That's how he makes his living. And then the dojo's next door uh, in the same building. And then his house is above that. Because in Japan, you kind of build everything up instead of out. And uh, so I had to learn acupressure, how to heal people, how to um, fix them up after we jack them up kind of thing. That was part of my Shihan or, you know, my higher level type training. Did so you, you got this. Uh, sorry yeah. to interrupt, Derek. Did you learn the dim mock? <laughs> you can tell me. It's okay. <laughs> I won't tell anybody. Yeah, you know, there's so much stuff out there that I remember when I was young, I was like, oh man, that looks so cool or that's so legit. And then when you kind of get older, a lot of it unfortunately gets a little demystified. That's so I hate fine, to, Derek. I hate your, to break it to you. Keep your secrets, Derek. That's fine. <laughs> I get it's, it. All right. Sorry to interrupt. But... This is not the style you're looking for. Yeah. Um, but no. So anyway, so that's kind of what happened. So you have this white guy who has been doing martial arts his whole life, and now he inherits the system. He's still in Japan, so he seeks out these other teachers, and he kind of strengthens and, and develops that art. So to answer your question in the longest way possible. Kami Shin now is this kind of more over the years and all through the wars and through migrating from China to Korea, to Japan, to the States has been now influenced by lots of arts, but the concepts are the same End the conflict. So for me, you know, self, you have two options, really. You have kind of the sport track and you have the, the combative track or the self-defense track. And if you really are focused on the combative track, then you don't want to spend a lot of time being bogged down by rules. Yeah. But let's be honest. Many of us aren't really worrying about combat. We're more looking for something to kind of push our skill set. And so competition is a healthy way to do that. So both tracks are great, but you kind of have to decide which track is yours. 
And then if you are going down that competition track, then you should really focus on the rule set so that you can excel in on that track. Mm -hmm. Well, Kami Shin is the opposite, right? It's like, okay, our specialty is there is no rule set. So we focus on what is going to efficiently end the conflict. So for me, self-defense is five things. Number one is awareness so that you can avoid it. Number two is assertiveness so you can de-escalate it. And then when those fail, it comes down to protect your center line because everything vital to you is on that line. And if you get knocked out, nothing else matters. And then change the bad guy's focus. If their focus is to pound you and all you do is block, yeah, you're protecting your center line, but you're not changing that dude's focus. So a good strike or, you know, in the days of the samurai, you could punch a dude in armor, wouldn't do much good. So that's why all those judo throws were, was created. It was pick the dude up in armor and instead of hitting him with Mother Earth, you slam him into Mother Earth. It was the next best thing to, to jack him up. And so awareness, assertiveness, protect your center line, change the bad guy's focus, and ultimately end the conflict quickly because you might have to deal with two more guys. So if you're wasting all your energy and you're gassing out on number one, number two, number three are going to finish you off. Or I might get really get a rear naked choke and I'm down, you know, uh, with a rear mount on the ground, but the guy's little sister jumps in and stomps on my head. It didn't do me any good that I was in a dominant position. So I need to end it and end it quickly is kind of our concept. And Kokoro was more specializing in that classical sense. Didn't really do any ground technique. Didn't really do um, a lot of uh, striking. You know, it was more that get to your primary weapon. So maybe law enforcement would take more advantage of that. I'm going to just tase you or shoot you. But if you grab my, my wrist to prevent me from drawing my weapon, now I've got lots of, you know, lots of options to um, put the pain on, as well as controlling holds, being able to pin someone, cause extreme pain, but not leave any marks, right? Mm-hmm. And growing up in California, that was very important. People will sue you for anything. So learning a martial art that I could... Uh, you know, not get sued uh, and and be able to maybe control the situation was also appealing. Now, I want to get to you training in Japan. and um, But before I do now, I also know that, so you did Kamishin Kokodo, Kokodo, is that, am I saying that right? Yeah, Kokodo. And then Nakamura Ryu is the sword style. Nakamura Ryu. Now, you're also learning Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu too, is that correct? Yes, absolutely. I love Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I, uh, uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu comes from Judo. And if, if they didn't change the rule sets, we would just be calling it judo because, uh, you know, judo wants the big throw. That's how you win. So you get the, the whole game is done with a throw. But in BJJ, what do you get for a good throw? You get two points, right? Really, most of the time. So the rule set has changed it to where a lot of it's on the ground. And of course, now the modern game with the Baron Bolos and all that, it's it's not, you know, it's kind of branching away from judo, but Brazilian jiu-jitsu comes from judo. Judo comes from Japanese jiu-jitsu. And so I'm an ER doctor who loves to also specialize in something. And the ground, I think, is very important. Uh, a lot of fights end up on the ground, right, in a combative sense or a street fight sense. They don't need to. They shouldn't. We should avoid the ground at all at, uh, at all costs. But a lot of fights end up on the ground. So knowing how to handle your business on the ground is very important. But really, for me, I consider it like a game of chess, right? We hear that analogy a lot, BJJ and chess. So my dojo then is kind of like MIT, right? Because uh, we're trying to solve real-world problems. Not MIT because we're super prestigious or snobby or, or whatever, but just like 
it's a, a place where we're trying to address real world issues. When the asteroid is going to kill Mother uh, Earth, we're going to get the smartest people we can from MIT to help solve our problems. Right. We're not just looking for any random junior college kid. So we want to be able to help people solve real world problems in the combative sense, in the mental, spiritual, physical growing and cultivating yourself. Right. That's what the, the traditional arts are, are known for. So that's what we do. But at MIT, we still like to play a lot of chess because we're nerds and we love the game of strategy and thinking yeah. moves ahead. So that's kind of me. I like to solve real world problems, but I love to play chess. And for me, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is great because I'm not a big fan of punching people in the face. I'm really good at it. And eh, depending on the day, I might put on some gloves and someone might get hit in the face, but it's not good for business, right? You know, when you're hitting your students and things like that. Um, but when you're grappling, man, you can go full strength, full speed, and you're not punching anyone in the face and everyone's still smiling and happy and you're getting a great workout. And, you know, it's, it's just a good way to try to stay young as we get older, you know, as martial artists. So that's what I really love about uh, BJJ is it's kind of, again, it's a chess game where I don't have that guilt of busting up someone's knees like I do when we do judo and someone doesn't know how to fall right and they get their knee torn out. That's the last thing I want to do is have someone not be able to walk anymore. And I also don't want to just keep bashing someone in the head or, or you know, kicking them. Good sparring partners, you're not going to have that problem. But, you know, those are few and far between. A lot of guys just get hit and the horns come out and then it's like, okay, I have two choices now. I can either destroy you, which is not going to be good for our relationship, or I can let you just pound on me. And that's not good for me either. It's really hard to find that balance when you have a partner that's not um, as adept at sparring. But when you're grappling anyone, the best of the best, the worst of the worst, you can do it full speed, full power without putting any permanent damage on them. It's just a game of chess. And in chess, you don't ever kill the king. You just capture him. You're just going for that checkmate, which is just your nice little submission. And, and so that's, uh, that's why I love BJJ. Cool. So now, when did you first make that uh, journey to Japan? And what, okay, brought, so I, and what brought it on, I guess? Yeah. So when I was 19, I served a, a two-year mission there, right? So that's how I became fluent in the language was I left that family for two years, um, all day, every day, no dating, no movies, no sleeping in. You know, I'm just riding a bike around um, Kyushu and Okinawa, the southern islands of Japan, um, spreading the message. Uh, and that was what I did. And I had already been training martial arts, and so I took a hiatus to do this. And then I went back. Um, and then having, you know, being uh, fluent in Japanese then allowed me to open up some doors to communicate because, you know, most of my, my teachers weren't fluent in English. Uh, what was so your I, favorite? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. What was your favorite Japanese word, the first one you learned? Um, you know, I really like the word flinky. It means atmosphere, right? So I want my dojo to have a nice flinky. F-U-I-N-K-I is how we probably write it in Japanese, but it's a fun word to say. <laughs> but that's, so that's uh, not only learning Japanese, but I learned very polite Japanese, very respectful language, as you can imagine a missionary yeah. uh, would be speaking. So that opened up some doors where I'm talking to these famous masters and there's other guys like me who want to learn Japanese and they have a Japanese girlfriend, but they're talking to these formal masters like they're in a locker room in high school. Mm -hmm. And the masters will put up with it because, you know, it's a foreigner. So, yeah. but, but deep down there's the, a relationship barrier yeah. because 
Japanese are old school, man. I mean, it's very much a levels type of society and situation. And, and, uh, and so being able to not only communicate, but to communicate in the appropriate way um, with the right tenego or keigo, right? The, the right levels of uh, etiquette and politeness you know, allowed me to open up doors. And so I remember I, I um, reached out to Idie Sensei in uh, Saitama, Japan. And, uh, you know, he's like, okay, um, this is an interesting story. So Google Earth had just come out. So I, I found his email on some website, but it didn't work. And so I basically, I just found his clinic. I knew he taught, did acupuncture. So I Google searched his clinic and I figured things out. Um, based off of information I got. And then I just called the number. I'm sitting in my office at the dojo and I just called Japan up. Um, and so someone answers and I'm just talking to her and she just assumed because I was calling from America, I was already one of his, you know, known associates. So she uh, made the mistake of giving me his home number. And mm. next thing I do, I call him up and he's like, who is this? And I'm like, oh, you know, my name is Derek Morris and da 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 da. And, and he basically could care less. And he's like, you need an introduction from a legit Shihan, right? Which is like a fifth degree black belt or higher type of person. And so I had to use this nice little workaround using Albert C. Church again, who had trained with his teacher um, many years. And, but people that were still alive, I used these different connections to get my foot in the door. But even then he was like, uh. um, and so then I remember he had me download this new app back then called Skype. And so I, I got, I had to call him at like 3 a.m. And so I'm like, I took a shower. I got all cleaned up. I didn't know how to turn the camera on. So I never even was on the camera. I was just, it was an odd, ended up just being an audio call. But he's just grilling me, asking all this stuff. And, and he says, okay, because I was coming, going to Japan anyway to do some sword training at a, at a sword taikai, uh, sword event. And um, I was like, I'd like to train with you. And, and he's like, uh, you know, even after I got my introduction. So finally, he tells me, okay, come to my clinic at this time. I'm not usually too busy and you can talk to me. I'm in Japan for a week before this date rolls on. I finally show up and then he sits down and he grills me again in person for a couple hours, you know, and I had a couple students there with me. They didn't understand anything that's going on. We're just talking in Japanese for a couple hours. He's asking me, I'm telling him the history I just told you. Well, I learned from this guy, Ted Petito, who learned from this guy, obviously Church, who had been living in Japan, who had inherited the system and has these ties back to your, you know, your first teacher, da, 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 da. And he was like, okay, okay. Um, all right, I'll tell you what, come back in two days and we'll see you on the mat. I come back two days later, I'm on the mat. He's just watching my technique. I'm just doing technique for two hours. He says, come back again tomorrow. I go back the next day. I'm doing technique now for an hour. I'm going back home in a couple of days. I don't have much more time. All I want to do is just kind of learn from this guy. And yet he hasn't taught me a single thing. He's just been grilling me questions and then technique. Finally, he partners up everybody but me and I'm just standing there in the dojo. And then he walks out. And I'm just like, I guess I'm standing here now. And then he looks over around the corner. He goes, oh, you come with me. He sits me down in his clinic around the corner from the dojo. And he kind of leans in and he whispers, okay, I will teach you. I'm thinking, what the heck, man? You're a martial arts teacher. I'm a martial artist. I, I speak your language. I flew all the way here. Why, you know, what, what is the whole big deal? I had no idea. Even though I understood etiquette and traditional martial arts, I didn't understand this whole song and dance until a year later when um, he had, I'd flown him out to California and we had done a seminar. And then um, I took him to visit some friends of his in, in uh, Laguna Beach, beautiful, nice town on the, uh, you know, near the beach. And he's talking to these friends that he learned to speak English a little bit. 
from when he had visited Hawaii 30 years in the past. And he's talking to them in very basic English, very simple. And he says, oh yeah, this is Derek. He's one of my students, one of only three direct students outside of Japan and the only one in America. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, you have this big organization, you have this style, you have thousands of people, but none of them are direct students. I didn't understand there's so much hierarchy. There's so much of this stuff. So that was my first trip to Japan for doing martial arts, was trying to get my foot in the door with this guy. And in between that, I had met him in Belgium uh, at a seminar there, and I showed up just wanting to train, and I ended up translating for him, uh, which was hilarious because there's 150 people there from 15 different European countries. None of them were native English speakers, but English was that kind of in-between language between Japanese and what everyone else was speaking, Flemish or German or whatever. And so he's speaking Japanese, I'm speaking English, and then he's going around teaching. Everyone is just expecting me to know these techniques. He's teaching techniques I'd never seen before. There are new variations that he had come up with in you know previous years. And so now I have to teach on the spot, helping him, and I'm being carted around to all these different uh, little banquet things where I'm now sitting next to him. Uh, you know, people that have been training way longer than me are getting out of their seats so I can sit down. Next thing I know, they're asked me, did I bring a nice shirt? I had like a, a polo shirt and we're at the mayor's place and there's handing champagne glasses out and then they're calling my name and I'm shaking a hand and holding up an award and pictures. I had no idea what's going on, but I had just been attached to him as a direct student. And so that all of a sudden gave me status despite the fact that I didn't know any of the techniques. I didn't know what I was doing. I just was all of a sudden the chosen one. And so that was a whirlwind experience of becoming, <laughs> you know, a direct disciple of this guy. And still to this day, I'm the only one in America. There's a guy in Canada, there's a guy in Paris, there's a guy in uh, Belgium. And, and then of course, he's got several in Japan, but, but, and then there's thousands of other people that are just kind of, you know, students of the art and that attend his events and, and, but uh, aren't that direct disciple. And so then I've been going back now, the arrangement was I had to train with him three times a year. So I'd fly him out to America once and I'd go to Japan twice. So before the pandemic, I was in Japan every six months, like clockwork, April, October, April, October, and uh, just taking students and having fun, training in Japanese swordsmanship, classical Japanese jujitsu, eating really good uh, ramen. Um, I know the, the Tokyo train uh, subways, buses, you know, uh, better than I know uh, pr pretty much any city in America. And I've taken, uh, like I said, over a hundred students to do all the typical fun stuff, sightseeing, go check out uh, the judo uh, headquarters, right? Uh, the Kodokan and, and uh, we've been to that island you're talking about and do the touristy stuff and uh, lots of great times, lots of great memories. And I can't wait till all of the, uh, the shutdowns end and I can actually get back in Japan. But if I was going to fly to Japan today, I would have to quarantine for two weeks before they let me go around. Derek, can I ask you a question? How long did you actually study the language and then the, the sentence structure? How long did you actually study the language in preparation to be able to go there and speak fluently? I mean, the first time you went, were you able to speak fluently or was this, you know, over time? Or yeah. So, yeah. So missionaries for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, right, often yeah. called Mormons. 
uh, we have a missionary training center in Provo, Utah. I went there for two and a half months and learned a ton. And then I got to Japan and realized I don't know what anyone's saying. Did you ever have any experiences like that with, with anybody who was just interested in you just because you were a foreigner? Yeah, so here's the other backstory. Um, you know, EDA Sensei took me on as a personal student and I'm thinking, oh, great, you know, I, I want to train your teacher. What's the big deal anyway, right? But the backstory was he loves California and I lived in California, mm -hmm. had a dojo in California and he had a student in California who he had offered to be a direct disciple of his, but he, for some crazy reason, decided to just stay in the situation he was in, which is he was underneath one of the high level guys that was out of Belgium. And so it blows my mind why he turned down, you know, his teacher's teacher to become his, uh, you know, but for whatever reason, he decided to do that. And so that had just happened probably six months before my conversation. So good timing. I'm a, I, I'm a white guy in California who could potentially bring you out to do seminars in a, in a state you like, where you have friends you would like to visit anyway. Um, and I want to be, and he first offered, he said, there's other guys you can train with. And I was, I didn't know them. I was like, I want to train with you. I had heard about you from my teacher. So now actually you said something. So us, is that a shortened version of Ohio gozaimasu? Is that what that is? That is one variation of it, right? So you'll hear in like BJJ, us, or karate schools, us. That's separate us. It's the same sounds, but yeah. that's separate than if I am I see you in the morning and I go, us. It's me, us. It's us just turns into us, you know? So again, if we're just friends or we're really, or, you know, young males, that's a yeah. typical thing as opposed to, right? Which would be a little bit more cheesy um, and exaggerated. When you're announcing things, right? You'll enunciate differently. When you're speaking to people that are above you in status, it's very rude to use any type of informal stuff. But when you're talking with your friends, it's also very weird to be talking to them like they're above your status. It's uncomfortable for them. So that your, your experience in Japan, it, it depends on who you're hanging out with. If you're hanging out with people on your level, then you're speaking formal all the time, then that's uncomfortable for them. It's kind of like, hey, dude, like I thought we were friends. But on the flip side, you're speaking like that with your teachers, especially if they're like a few decades older than you, yeah. then then it's awkward too. Now, of course you can get away with it when you're, you have, we call it the Gaijin card, right? The Gaijin card yeah. is your like, get out of jail free card. You can do stupid stuff. And I would do that too. And I'd take people to go check out stuff. I can read Japanese, I can read kanji, but I would just be like, oh, I'm sorry. We're not supposed to be here, but you I want to speak or read first. Um, I learned both. Or hand in hand. Huh? Yeah. Well, and what I learned is, is, you know, and I've taught Japanese for many, many years, and I tell students, look, you can skip learning kanji, right? To learn Japanese, you have to learn 46 hiragana, 46 katakana, and then you need a couple thousand kanji to be, you know, fluent. But the, the problem is, is no one needs to write it anymore, really, because you can just punch it in or even voice text it, and it'll pull it up if you can recognize it. But what learning kanji does is it quadruples your vocabulary. Once you understand the, the, the characters, you know, they are a compound. Most vocabulary words are a compound of two characters. And so understanding the characters then exponentially increases your vocabulary, which of course comes in handy. Now you've been to Japan how many times? Uh, you know, I think it's about 25. So 25 what, times. like what motivates or what's, what's your reason you keep going back? Do you still find new things you're learning as far as the martial arts is concerned? 
You know, um, I always say as, you know, martial arts business owners, we are selling two things. We sell community and confidence. We all want to have a tribe, you know, or a community, like-minded people that, 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 that are helping us push us ourselves or elevate our game. And that's yeah. what a dojo or a gym or a martial arts school can be for people. It can be that community, just like think of CrossFitters, right? They're like a tight-knit community and they love their CrossFit and they're always talking about CrossFit and, and they get along with their CrossFit pals. So, you know, that's what a dojo is like too. It's the dojo family is what we always call it. And so I love that community, but I also love teaching confidence. And where, how do you get confidence? You develop their competence. And so when people get stronger physically through the warmups and the physical stuff, that's going to help them with their body confidence, right? And then when you help them learn to protect themselves, that's going to help them with their mental confidence. And then you learn, you teach them the character values and things that kind of go hand in hand with martial arts that's going to improve their spiritual confidence so to speak so we're selling community and confidence and they're getting that confidence because they're part of a community that they don't want to quit going to japan i mean let's just you guys are like me right if i said hey look i got a trip coming up it's only 1500 bucks for 10 days in japan i got training set up with some legit masters you know we got some good food i can do the translating i got the airbnb set up you guys want to go Yes. Uh, yes, very much so. And I've taken many people that don't even do martial arts. They're like, can I go on one of your trips? Sure, absolutely. Because the food is worth it. Just for the food, it's worth going to Japan. You know what I mean? For a good bowl of skemen. Um, go to Yakiniku Tabehodai, right? All you can eat barbecue places and stuff like that. So much fun cultural things to do. Well, that's part of building that community. So being part of a dojo that does, you know, semi-annual trips to Japan is awesome. It's part of a community. And so everyone's saving up to go. And I've got it down to, I've taken a few students who did it for about 1500 bucks. And that was flights and, you know, where to stay because I know how to do it on the cheap uh, for people that want to do it on the cheap, or you want to spend more money. Hey, we'll hop on the bullet train. We'll go down to Kyoto and Nara. We'll, we'll, we'll see some cool stuff. We, I've done so that is as this well. An official, is this an official invite to Jerry and I? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Right, count us in. <laughs> no, and, and I do. I love it. And I, even though I've done it countless times and I always I'm doing the similar things, I'm taking people to Shibuya, you know, to the Tokyo Scramble Crossing and I'm taking people to um, Asakusa, you know, for the, the typical uh, Red Lantern, Kaminarimon photo and, and doing the Nakamise, the shops and going to Takeshita Dori and seeing the Harajuku girls. And, you know, even though I've done it a, countless times, it never gets old. It's Japan. It's a different world. It's a different feel, a different culture, the food, the, the smells, the people, the experience. It's clean. It's friendly. It's, it's, not, it's, it's really different uh, than pretty much anywhere else I've ever been, and it never gets old. Now, does your you wife know? and kids go with you too? So I, I always – I have this thing. I have seven children, right? So I, 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 I've always wanted to take them all and spend, you know – three, six months in Japan. We haven't quite been able to work that out. We were moving towards that and then COVID happened and, and things have happened. So what I have done though, is I've taken my wife three times. Um, she loves it. Um, I've taken, and then I've taken well, my kids when they turned 11, I would take them. So my oldest I took when he was 11, my second when he was 11. And then my daughter, my third child turned 11 in 2020. My trip got canceled. I still have a credit from 2020 for flights. Uh, to Japan with A and A, <laughs> uh, but 
so then we pushed it back to 2021, still not open. So the plan is to go, I've got my calendar right there. So we're supposed to go November 7th. This year. But yes, this year. Fingers crossed, but I'm not very optimistic. Uh, right now, if we flew to Japan, they would make us download an app that would track us. We'd have to prove that we're staying in, you know, either, you know, it's very tight parameters where we can stay, but basically it's like a hotel where they can call at random times or where there's an app we have to log into that has facial recognition. We have to do all this or we get blacklisted, kicked out of Japan. We can't come back. You know? Yeah. And so that's, it's a shame. So, and they're, they're paranoid. I mean, we have Omicron blowing through Arizona right now. Cause of course at the time of this recording, we're still dealing with all, a lot of the, uh, the, uh, pandemic drama, but they don't even have it. All their cases have been caught at the airport. No one has it in Japan, which, you know, to me is kind of silly too, because it's like, you can't hide from it forever. Um, but I don't know how long they're going to continue these. They're getting a lot of pressure to open up, you know, uh, they had the Olympics there without anybody. Uh, it was bad. It, they need, they need people coming in and I, I need to get my, uh, my, my ramen on. I need to get back to Japan. So let me ask you, so what's some of your like, uh, favorite, like, uh, memories or training moments in Japan? All right. Well, you know, I, I love, I love experiencing it. And then I love taking people that have never been, because you know how it is. You get to experience it almost again for the first time with people. And so that's what kind of keeps it fresh is I, I'm always going and taking, you know, new people with me. There's been a few trips, actually, I got lucky and it was really just maybe my wife or one student who had also done several trips with me. So sometimes it's nice, too, when I don't have to be the tour guide all the time and I can kind of, you know, go off and do some other things. But, man, I've got all kinds of fun memories. One, you know, one one time we um, one of my favorite things to do is go to uh, Ueno Park. Ueno Park is. Oh, yeah. It's like Central Park. Uh, Like you think of New York Central Park. That's basically what it is in Tokyo. And so I love going to Ueno Park. And so one time I'm walking around with my brother. My brother and I grew up skateboarding. So we, we went on one trip and I remember doing a big old blog post about swords and skateboards because we would go skating around Tokyo. Nike has a skate park there um, actually uh, in Shibuya. So we do a lot of skating. And anyway, so I'm taking around Ueno Park and I run into this group of college students who are trying to practice their English. They have like an English club. And so they're at Ueno Park trying to find tourists to, to, get, to give them a guide of Ueno Park. So of course I go to Japan all the time. So I get there and I meet these guys and they want to practice their English. I'm like, sure, you know, my brother's right here and I'll, I can speak English too. And, but of course I end up still speaking a lot of Japanese and cracking jokes in Japanese and, and making friends. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go over to this, you know, this little hidden park over here in Todai. So Todai is basically the Harvard of Japan. It stands for Tokyo Daigaku and it's not far from Ueno Park. So I'm cutting through these little shortcuts. And these kids are following me, you know, because they just wanted to practice English. They're like, we've never been here. We don't, what is this? You know, and I take them to this little kind of a secret little park. It's got a pond. It's got waterfalls. It's silent. And you're in the heart of Tokyo. And it's just the most peaceful and serene place. And, and so now I've got, you know, five, six Japanese people that were supposed to give me a guide. And now I'm giving Japanese people uh, you know, a tour guide. And then right next to it, there's the Tokyo Daigaku. So the Todai's 
kendo and judo dojo which is a beautiful classical dojo and that's where i pretend i don't read japanese when it says you know don't enter and then i go you know i always like to sneak in the dojo and they always have all their kendo stuff hanging out it's all you know worn to shreds because these are guys that are just going after each other they're not looking to look pretty in the uniforms it's just it's just like a uh, a football jersey to them kind of a thing um and so anyway i've got lots of cool memories like that where i just you know get find little cool things take people sometimes even teaching japanese people about uh some of the 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 nice perks that they have in their own town that they didn't really know they had yeah when i went to japan i went to i got to train at the kyoto police department and when i pulled up i was blown away because there was like 300 judo geese hanging up and that is like whoa that's like that overwhelms you with what's going on in there and stuff like that right now what are some of the concepts or training philosophies that you've learned in japan that you bring back to your class i mean i know you can't talk about all of them but what are like one or maybe two of them that you're bringing back to your school your dojo in here in america absolutely so you know one of my uh, favorite principles is Hei Joshin, right? So Hei Joshin means even killed, calm amongst the chaos. And life is chaotic. You're in a parking lot and someone starts, you know, maybe you're not even involved. You're in a parking lot and there's two other people screaming at each other and they're fighting and shoving each other around. Your heart rate starts going up. You're not even involved in the thing, but you can kind of get sucked into drama sometimes and you can get sucked into things. And that's life. How often do we get sucked into things? So I've learned this from my sword teachers. You know, you're you're wielding a very sharp, very dangerous sword. And you know, if we're doing live blade kumitachi, we're moving out of the way and then stopping that sword, you know, just inches from your carotid artery. You have to stay calm you spaz out or you do something, you know, you're getting cut, you're getting hurt. Um, so learning that Hey Joshin concept of being calm amongst the chaos, that's a great skill for everyone to learn in this life because there's always going to be chaos. There's always going to be drama. And sometimes it's in our own heads, all the things we got to do or all the things we have anxiety over or stresses over. So learning to breathe and learning to stay calm, Maybe you're, you're grappling and you got that big heavy dude on top of you and he's got a good side control and now you're like in his armpit and, you know, or he's, he's, he's in a mountain and their sweat is dripping down and dropping in your eyeball and all those kind of uncomfortable and scary situations. You can freak out and try to, you know, gas out trying to escape or you can stay calm and wait for them to go for their next move and then use it against them. Ride the wave and off balance them themselves. I also really like this concept, uh, the samurai concept of sen no sen. So like think basic karate, you, you strike, I block, and then I punch. They call that go no sen, reacting. Then there is sen no sen, which is preemptive. You reach your hand back to punch and I pop you real quick with a jab. That would be a preemptive type of strike. So we call that sen no sen. So karate use these, these terms as well, but they come from the samurai of you know being not just reacting to that sword coming out and cutting you but to their intent as they go to draw the sword and then they take it one step further sen sen no sen and that is you know a perceived preemptive attack which in the days of the samurai you can get away with that 
you can literally cut some dude's throat and say, I perceived he was about to attack me. That doesn't go over too well in the court of law here uh, in today's world. But what we can take from that is this concept of being proactive. Don't wait. Things will happen and you have to use go no sen. But to the wise and proactive practitioner, they are not waiting until that fist is already barreling down on them. They are being proactive to preempt the attack, which again comes back to what I talked about in the beginning, being aware. The more aware we are, the more we can avoid situations. But that's not just on the mat. When we are aware of what's going on around us, the influences that are pummeling us, we can avoid more of them, which then causes less chaos and conflict in our lives. When we are assertive, we're telling someone to back off. We are not Hulk, we are not being aggressive and, and pounding them, but we are also not piglet and cowering and being timid. We are taking a stand, keeping our eye contact, and then using a strong voice. We're bold, but not overbearing. We, I teach this to my students to be aware, to avoid issues in life, be assertive and stand for what you believe in and say, speak up, say no. Every time we say no to something, it frees us to say yes to the truly essential and important things in our life. There are so many good things happening, but if we say yes to all of them, that's going to choke up our time to the more important things we do. So focus like a fire hose is one of my little sayings. Don't be a sprinkler. This world is full of sprinklers. Ding, phone goes off, boom, message here. We need to learn to take all that energy and channel it and focus it. So these are some of the principles that I have learned and developed over the years from all of my teachers. And I love to share these concepts to improve students on and off the mat because that's kind of what we're trying to do. In every dojo, our real goal is to liberate greatness, to help that student blossom and grow and overcome these weaknesses, which is why my dojo is called the Hidden Dojo. It's not because it's hard to find, although it was for many, many years. It's because it's where you discover what's hidden in you. That's the concept. What is hidden in you? And you uncover that when you develop your skills and your confidence. And you uncover that when you take these ancient principles from the samurai and you figure out how to apply them to today's, you know, technologically advanced and chaotic world. Hey, Joshin, stay calm amongst the chaos. Stay aware, stay assertive, and do whatever it takes to protect your center line and then change that bad guy's focus. Or in, in, in most cases, when we're fighting, we're trying to defeat the enemy. And an enemy is anything that tries to drag you down or hold you back. But we must never forget the greatest enemy of all is the enemy within. So we have to change our own focus. We have to snap out of certain behaviors and habits so that we can continue on our path. Do we know how to punch? Do we know how to kick? Do we know how to choke and grapple? Of course. But do we know how to punch and kick and grapple with life's real issues and problems? That's at the heart of what the samurai was trying to get at, which is why he became a warrior and a poet and not just, you know, a tool for destruction. I like it. That was good. I mean, I think people are going to find a lot of good value in that. Um, so I guess I'm going to throw like a, a fun question at you just to kind of wrap it up and stuff like that. So when you're in Japan training, have you had to wax any floors or anything like that? 
<laughs> so, yeah. so yeah, when, so again, at the Kokoro Hombu Dojo in Omiya, Japan, after class, we we're scrubbing the mats. So we, we have this little lint roller thing that we use now and there's a little vacuum to get in between. So it's not always like the bucket and rags, but there is literally rags and we're running up and down and cleaning that. And then when we do uh, like our sword taikai, taikai is a large gathering or, or competition or seminar. When we do a sword taikai, everybody's there early. Everyone's moving the mats that we use, that we cut with the sword. Everyone's helping clean up. It's just what you do in Japan. You go yeah. to school in Japan, they don't have janitors. That's what kids are for. The kids all help clean up, you know, erase the chalkboard, dust off the things. They're cleaning the floors. They're doing this. It's just part of the culture. You know, I remember taking my wife to Japan for the first time and we're in the subway and there's a guy on a ladder removing the light bulbs, the fluorescent light bulbs, and then dusting them off. You know what I mean? Like, can you imagine that in a New York subway station that there's like a guy who's like dusting light bulbs, you know? It's just crazy the the amount of care that they are taught to have. Yeah. So absolutely, you know, help out and clean up. And if you are listening to this and you train at a martial arts school, stick around and maybe help clean those mats or a little bit. It's 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 part of the etiquette. It's part of kind of contributing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's called soji, right? Yes. Yeah, that's something Cleaning, that I yeah. I. I uh... I use in my school. Do you use something like that with your students too? So in, in my um, school in California, absolutely. Everyone knows after class, you know, you're getting the rags and we still do it. They run up and down and they go back and forth and they're, they're scrubbing it. That's exactly how we, we do things um, in, in the dojo here. We've got a, I got, I had a student give it, hook us up with a fancy backpack sprayer and then we have some mops. So students are still doing it, but it's not like everybody is getting down with the rags. It's just a couple students um, can knock it out pretty quick. Cool. Have you considered a Roomba? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, now, before we wrap it up, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or share with everybody? You know, honestly, I think I uh, <laughs> kept people on this podcast long enough. So if anyone's still listening, congratulations. You are a martial arts junkie. <laughs> I appreciate that too. Um, so now if somebody is interested in like, you know, reaching out and wanting to learn from you, how do they get in touch with you? Uh, probably the easiest way you search for me on uh, Facebook and just pop a message. It's probably the fastest and easiest way to, to contact me. I didn't used to use Facebook, but of course I've learned you need it for your business. And now I, I use it to funnel my students into groups for like our sword uh, group so they can watch different videos and learn things like how to properly tie the hakama and the obi or where to buy your sword so they're not buying junk and so it's an it's an effective tool still to get the word out so all you got to do is reach out to me that way and if you if there's something i can do to help you out i'm always happy to spread and influence people for good as much as i can cool well i appreciate it i i love the interview i hope every i, I think everybody's going to really enjoy what you shared today yeah thank you derek thank you all right. Have a great day, sir. All right. You too. All right. Bye-bye. In our next episode, we speak with Grandmaster Dennis Brown, the first African-American to train Kung Fu in China, and the Tian Shan Pai Master under Grandmaster Willie Ling. Thanks for joining the Martial Arts Junkies podcast today. Make sure you like, follow, subscribe. We're on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Martial Arts Junkies and at MartialArtsJunkies.com. Hit us up in the comments and let us know what you think.